your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have a great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith... Establish and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God that he gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make among them, make known among them the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we, might, we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Thank you. Well read, Hannah. Well, sorry, James. Looks like, looks like our secret's out. But I think we can still safely deny Sophia, Bug and Tom. 
no relation at all. Uh, before I begin, I thought I'd do a couple of quick uh, book reviews, uh, just to make the talk longer. Um, <laughs> I hope you're a reader. Uh, sometimes I bump into people who say, oh, I don't really read books. Christians read books. We're the people of a book. Our God, when He chose to speak to us, wrote it down for us. And so Christians are readers, and I want to introduce you to two of the greatest books written in the 20th century. Um, loads of books, hundreds of thousands of books were written in the 20th century, but here are two of the most outstanding, life-changing books you will ever read. The first one is on the topic we're looking at this week. It's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And of all of the books written about the cross over the last 2,000 years, this one is an absolute standout. John Stott is dead now, who's an English theologian and preacher, and this was his, really, his greatest work. Um, I remember reading it in first year at uni, and it was more than I understood the cross better, I loved the cross better. I loved the cross more, and I loved the God behind it. It's a really clear book, it's long-ish, but it's a fairly easy read. I can't recommend it enough. Another book that is a little bit more difficult is this book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Again, it was written in the last century, I think around about 1970. And in this book, he takes us to the greatest thing that we can ever learn, and that is about God himself. And this is, a, again, it's a book that teaches you, but it actually warms your heart. You'll find yourself worshipping God because He draws you into God's character and God's nature and God's work and His beauty. It's a much harder read. It's a book that often people say, I kind of got two or three chapters in and I struggled. And so if you're not necessarily a reader, this one is a slightly easier one to start with. But this one is just wonderful. Of the two books, uh, The Cross of Christ is 25 bucks. This one is 23 bucks. I would grab them quickly before anyone else does, although, you know, you might want to be generous and let someone else get it, but... <clears throat> now, Chuck Yeager had a stellar career. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. After the war, he flew prototype jets. He even flew for NASA. But the thing he's best known for is actually breaking the sound barrier. So on October the 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager was the first man ever to break through the sound barrier. He flew at Mach 1, which is 1,225 kilometers an hour. And now that seems like kind of an ordinary thing. But back in 1947, this was huge. There were all sorts of theories about what might happen when we finally broke through the sound barrier. Some scientists said the sound barrier was actually impenetrable that the pilot and the plane would disintegrate as soon as they hit the speed of sound. Some people, even literally, some people seriously thought that as you went through the sound barrier, the pilot would reverse in age and go back to childhood. That's how much of an unknown it was. Look what Chuck Yeager said about the experience. The faster I got, the smoother the ride. We were flying supersonic and it was as smooth as a baby's bottom. Grandma could be sitting up there sipping lemonade. <laughs> I was thunderstruck. After all the anxiety, all the anticipation, breaking the sound barrier was really a letdown. The sonic barrier, the unknown, was just to poke through jello, a perfectly paved speedway. Later I realized this mission had to end in a letdown 
Because the real barrier wasn't in the sky, but in our minds, in our knowledge, and in our experience. How good is that? The real barrier wasn't in the sky, but in our minds. And sometimes that's true, isn't it? The, the real obstacle to truth isn't out there. The real obstacle to truth is in here. It's our paradigm. It's our basic understanding of the world. And occasionally, our paradigms just get rocked. Like Chuck Yeager, we realize everything is different to what we thought. Now, paradigm needs to shift. Tonight, I want us to have a paradigm shift. I want us to break through a barrier in our thinking about the universe and also about the cross. Why did Jesus die? Everything we saw Jesus go through last night, why did he do it? More than that, why did the Father and the Son work together to send Jesus to that cross? Well, the answer you probably already know, especially if you've been to the seminars, is for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus' death is what is called a penal substitution. In other words, on the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us and took our penalty. That's what a penal substitution is. Jesus substituted himself for me. He went into my place and took my penalty because Jesus didn't deserve to suffer. I did. I was the one who'd rebelled against God. I was the one who'd turned myself into a kind of God. And it wasn't just me. We all have. We've all done it, haven't we? But on the cross, Jesus did something amazing. He substituted himself for us and he took our penalty. So Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or Isaiah 53, 12, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, Jesus was my substitute. He bore my sin, he took my guilt, he carried my punishment. And the New Testament actually uses a wonderful little word to express this idea. It's the word hoopa. And what hoopa means is on behalf of. It means to do something on behalf of someone else. Usually the NIV just translates it as the word for. And you can see it in passages like Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And there that word for is hoopa, on behalf of. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, he died for us, on behalf of us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Or Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in all those verses, the word is hoopah. Jesus died on our behalf. So that ultimately, the idea of substitution is actually at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is me substituting myself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for me. And you might already know this, especially if you've been to Richard's seminars, but actually this is where our thinking, our paradigm can junk up our thinking about the cross. Because you see, as human beings, what's our natural paradigm? How do we naturally see the world as human beings? Well, it's selfishness, isn't it? 
My world revolves around me. Human beings have this innate paradigm that everything in the universe, actually, including God, actually revolves around me. You see it in the way advertisers appeal to us, don't you? So have a look at this placemat from Burger King. It says, have it your way. You have the right to have exactly what you want when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's. And the day after. And, well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, my friend, but you are the almighty ruler. And all I wanted was a hamburger. (laughs) Now, why do they advertise to us like that? Well, because even though we mightn't ever be that crude... We like it. It fits my paradigm. I love the idea that I'm the almighty ruler, at least over my life. Another ad I got in the mail was from the Commonwealth Bank. It's a whole bunch of things written on a chalkboard, and in the middle it says, Gregory's favourite. And down the right, it's all about you and interest rates. In fact, that ad even personalises the appeal to my pride, doesn't it? It's Gregory's favourite. Mind you, the only person who ever called me Gregory was my mother and only when I was in trouble, so it kind of brought back bad memories. (laughs) But the message is clear, isn't it? The Commonwealth Bank is all about me. It fits the me paradigm. So what happens when I hear that Jesus died for me? What does my paradigm lead me to think? Well, it leads me to think that the cross is all about me. That God and Jesus and heaven all revolve around me. The cross is all about my future and my salvation and my going to heaven, which is true, don't get me wrong. But what do we lose in all of that? We lose God. Because, friends, God has a different paradigm to us. God is passionate about His glory. God's passionate about His honour and His name and His grandeur and His fame. Look what God says when He promises to save Israel in Ezekiel 36. He says, it's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the greatness, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. You see, here's God. He's promising to save his people, but not for their sake. No, for the sake of his holy name, for his glory, because that is the point of the universe, that God receive glory is the point of the whole universe. I once read the most wonderful and profoundly simple sentence. God is not an idolater. Such a simple sentence and yet so profound. God is not an idolater. Idolatry is where you put something ahead of God. You put something before God. In the Ten Commandments, it's, you shall have no other God before me. That's idolatry. And God is not an idolater. God will never put anything before his own glory. So, yes, God loves Israel, but not before his glory. And God loves you, but not as much as he loves his own glory. And so, when you look at heaven, what is heaven all about? Well, time and time again, all through the book of Revelation, heaven is about the glory of God. 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's what heaven is about. Do you get the picture? God's paradigm is his glory. The point of the universe is not you. This is one of those areas where we need a Copernican revolution. Ever heard of Copernicus? Copernicus was the Polish astronomer who lived in the 16th century and is the first person to realize that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. See, for centuries, people thought that the sun and all the planets revolved around the earth. But Copernicus said, no, no, no. In the middle of all sits the sun on his throne, like a royal dais, ruling his children, the planets which revolve around him. And it was such an extraordinary idea. People just couldn't grasp the idea that we weren't at the center of the universe. He was actually declared a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. But as people slowly began to see that Copernicus was right, it caused a revolution. People finally caught on. We are not at the center. The sun is. And that's the revolution we need to have about God. You are not at the center of the universe. God is. You are not what God loves most. You are not the most important thing to God. You're not even the most important thing in your life. God is. And friends, if that's true of the universe, it must be true of the cross. If the universe is all for God's glory, so must the cross be. And so tonight we're going to break through the me-centered thinking about the cross and we're going to see how the cross is for God's sake. What did the cross display about God? What did the cross achieve for God? Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've been taught from our cradles to think that we are at the very center of the universe. Our whole culture around us tells us to do us, to be ourselves, to follow our dreams, to follow our hearts, to put ourselves as number one. But you sit enthroned in heaven. You are the center of the universe. Everything in the universe is about you. And so we pray tonight, please help us to see how the cross is for your sake. Help us to see what it achieved for you and your glory. Amen. Now, one of the things Christians hate most is finding a verse that doesn't fit. So we're reading along in our quiet time and we're thinking, yes, understand that. Yes, Paul got that bit right. I agree with him there. And all of a sudden, bam, we hit a verse that, that doesn't make sense. It's like a speed hump. I don't agree with this verse. Now, we hate it because either that means I haven't understood what this verse is saying or worse still, I've got God wrong. And so the easiest thing to do, the time-honored thing to do, is you just slide quietly past that verse and pick it up on the other side where you do agree with Paul again. But those verses are brilliant. 
Those verses that you just don't understand, that you, they just don't make sense, they're the brilliant ones because they show us where our thinking needs to change to match God's and that's what happens in Colossians chapter 1. Come with me to Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him <clears throat> and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, that's one of the great passages of the Bible. It's a hymn about Jesus as God's firstborn or heir. The firstborn is the heir. So look in verse 15. Jesus is the firstborn or heir over all creation because in verse 16, Jesus created everything in this creation and Paul kind of spans the list of everything in this creation. Things on earth, things in heaven, things that are invisible, visible, whether thrones, powers, rulers and authorities. In other words, he's saying everything that's physical in this created realm was created by Jesus and also everything in the spiritual realm was created by Jesus too. Things in heaven, the thrones, the powers, the rulers, the angels, demons, Satan. It doesn't matter what it is, he's saying, Jesus created everything. And verse 16, he created everything for himself, that's why he's the heir. But not just of this creation, verse 18, he's also the firstborn from among the dead. In the new world where God's people are raised, Jesus is going to be the heir there as well because he's already been raised. He's the firstborn. You see, Jesus is firstborn over both creations, which means, look in verse 19, Jesus is supreme in everything. He has the supremacy. So Colossians 1 is actually a great Copernican revolution passage. It shows us that Jesus is at the center of God's universe and not me. And that's all well and good, except for what Paul says in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See what our problem with that verse is? Can you spot it? Paul says, all things in heaven and on earth have been reconciled to God through Jesus. But how can that be? Because reconcile means to re-establish proper interpersonal relations. It's In verse 20, it's making peace. But you would never say all things in the universe are at peace with God, would you? What about non-Christians? They're not at peace with God, they're rebelling against God. What about Satan? Satan's not reconciled to God, is he? He's rebelling against God. How can all things be reconciled to God through Jesus? Well, I guess we've got two options. One, 
maybe it turns out everyone is saved after all. Maybe we've been wrong about hell and judgment all this time. Everyone actually is saved. No one's going to be judged. Although when you think about it, the Bible is pretty clear, isn't it? There are lots of passages about this. God is going to judge the world. There is such a thing as hell. Not everyone is going to be saved. That's pretty clear. So have we got reconciliation wrong then? Does reconciliation mean something different to what we thought? Is Satan, in fact, at peace with God? Just not the way we think about it. Well, actually, yeah, that's right. Satan is at peace with God. It's just that there are two very different ways of making peace. See, one way of making peace is by forgiving your enemy. That's what God does for Christians. So look down in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy and blameless in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, if you're a Christian, you have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death and now you're forgiven. Now you're holy, now you're blameless, now you're free from accusation. For Christians, reconciliation comes by salvation. But reconciliation can come another way too. Peace can be made another way too, can't it? Not when you forgive your enemy, but when you totally destroy your enemy. When you so completely destroy them, that they have nothing left to fight with. And that's what God did to Satan on the cross. So turn over a chapter to chapter 2, verse 13. 2.13. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taking, taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice Paul talks about the powers and authorities there. They're the same things Jesus created and reconciled back in chapter 1, verse 16. This is Satan and his cohorts. It's the spiritual powers of evil. And look what God did to them on the cross in 2.15. On the cross, God disarmed them. On the cross, God triumphed over them. On the cross, God made a public spectacle of Satan and his cronies. You see, the cross of Jesus was the moment when God actually did make peace with Satan and all of his demons, but not by forgiving them, no, by crushing them and defeating them forever. How? Well, look in verse 13. It's by forgiving our sins. In verse 14, it's by fulfilling the law. We're going to look more at this tomorrow night. But Satan is God's great enemy. Satan rebels against God and he lures every single human being into rebellion against God by his lies. And so in chapter 1 verse 13, Paul said, Satan has built a dominion of darkness. 
against God. A dominion that every single human being is born into and falls into in our rebellion. That is, Satan is everything that the Copernican Revolution isn't. But on the cross, God destroys Satan's kingdom. He empties his dominion because Jesus died for the rebels. Jesus paid for the rebels. And so in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, The Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's what the cross was. The cross was the Father emptying, destroying, plundering Satan's kingdom by saving rebels right out from his grasp. So what does Satan rule now? Nothing. His people have been stripped from him. You see, the cross was this magnificent moment of irony. Satan thought, we saw last night, Satan entered into Judas. And Satan thought that he was nailing Jesus to the cross. Satan thought that he was triumphing over Jesus on the cross. He thought that Jesus was being made a public spectacle on the cross because everyone was jeering him. But it was actually the other way around. God was nailing Satan to that cross. God was triumphing over Satan on that cross and showing the whole universe his defeat. Because in that moment, Satan's kingdom came crashing down and peace was restored to the universe. A peace that will be completed when Jesus comes back. This is reconciliation through annihilation. See, why did Jesus die? Well, yes, it was for you, but even more than that, this was for God's sake. The cross was about re-establishing God's rule, re-establishing God's majesty, bringing peace to God's universe. Actually, you you might find this idea a little bit confronting, that Jesus and God are about annihilation and triumphing and publicly shaming God's enemies. It all sounds a little bit hostile, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like the loving God that we know. In fact, you mightn't like the idea of a God who triumphs over his enemies very much. But that's where we need to go through the Copernican Revolution. We need to see just how important God's glory is and how offensive sin is. God's glory and honour is the most important thing in the universe. That God be unopposed in his universe. That God be recognised and honoured in his universe. That God's power and majesty be seen and displayed through the universe. That's why God made the universe, remember? In Revelation 4, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God created the universe for his own glory. But that hasn't happened. Satan rebelled. His demons have rebelled and they lured humanity into a slavery and into rebellion against God. And it's a travesty. It's offensive. Paul understood that. When Paul goes to Athens, he gets there and he he sees all the idols in Athens and it says he's greatly distressed. And that word for greatly distressed, it means to burn with anger. It's like when you're so eaten up with anger, you feel it in your guts. That's how Paul felt when he saw the idols of Athens because they are robbing God. They're stealing. Athenians shouldn't be worshipping Zeus. Zeus doesn't even exist. 
They ought to be worshipping the true God. Novocastrians shouldn't be worshipping money and pleasure and family. They ought to be worshipping Yahweh, the true God. Satan oughtn't be leading people away from the true God. He's robbing God through those idols. And it eats Paul out. And so he does something about it. He preaches to the people of Athens. Do you realize that's actually one of the reasons why we evangelize as well? We don't just tell people about Jesus for their benefit. We tell people about Jesus for God's benefit. Because we don't want to see these people dishonoring God anymore. That is, when you look at the lives of your non-Christian friends, does your heart actually break for God? Are you offended for God? That he's being robbed of his true glory in their life. Often we look at our, our friends who aren't Christian and we kind of envy them. Because they get to live this life of sin. They get to have sex before marriage and they get to get drunk. And we look at them and we're jealous. Or at least if we're a little bit more Christian, we might feel sorry for them. Because we can see how much they're hurting themselves. But actually the cross shows us the true cost of sin. The true cost of sin is that the majestic pure magnificent God was being dishonored and that must not be and when Jesus died God's enemy was destroyed and peace was restored you see it's the cross for God's sake and you know Colossians 1 actually shows us another way the cross is for God's sake it made us God's possession. So have a look down in Colossians 1.21 again. He says, Once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Why did Jesus die for us? Well, if you ask 100 Christians, 99 of them will say, so that we can go to heaven. So that we can have eternal life, so that we can have heaven. And it's true, but again, it's the me first paradigm. What Paul says is, no, God reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death in order to present you holy in God's sight. God saved you in order that you might be presented to him. And that presenting idea, it actually comes from the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament temple, things were presented up to God. So sacrifices were presented to God and tithes were presented to God. That's why they had to be free from blemish because only things that are free from blemish are worthy of being presented to God. And Paul says, that's why Jesus died for you. So that you could be made free from blemish, free from accusation, so that you could be presented to God. So that you could be his. Did you know that that's what heaven is going to be? Heaven is where you and me and every Christian who's ever lived is going to be presented up to God. He will be there on his throne. He'll be shining in majesty and the angels will be singing and adoring. And Jesus will present us to his father forever. And then we will spend eternity praising and adoring God. We'll spend eternity in that Copernican revolution where God is at the very center of heaven. And you know, if you don't think that that sounds amazing, if you actually think to yourself, well, it kind of feels a little bit boring, 
If you'd rather heaven was kind of the eternal surfing trip or the eternal party, you just haven't understood how captivating God is. In heaven, we will be entranced by God. We'll see Him as He is. And we'll just be captivated by Him. I mean, think of it this way. If God's gifts, things like surfing and parties, if if those things are wonderful, imagine what it will be to come face to face with the giver of those gifts. How much more wonderful will that be? And in heaven, we will be given to Him forever and we'll be radiant and pure and shining and all of the universe will see how worthy God is. God is worthy of these millions of pure, perfect, radiant people. And that is why Jesus died. Jesus did not die to give you heaven. He died so that in heaven, you will be given to God. And you might ask yourself, well, does that mean that I'm unimportant? Does that mean that, that God doesn't love me? Of course you're important. Of course God loves you. But remember, God's not an idolater. God comes first. God is more important than me. And so he's even more important than me at the cross. It's the cross for God's sake. Do you see what the cross achieves? It achieves universal peace. It brings the universe back to its right place, worshipping God. It gives God a people who'll worship him in heaven. And point three on your outline, if you're following the outline, the cross also is the great display of God's wisdom and God's power. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Oh, thank you. Once many years ago, because I used to drink a lot more water back then, somebody actually put about 20 glasses of water behind me. And so I decided I would drink all 20 <laughs> during the talk. I think I woke up about six times that night and went out and peed. I've never done it since. But I did need that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent of frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Paul has the most extraordinary, bizarre evangelistic strategy. If you're thinking about being missional, being like the world to win the world, don't, don't read this. Because Paul says, look, Jews are really convinced by miracles. They love miracles, signs of power. And Greeks really love ideas and wisdom and arguments. And so we give them the very opposite of both of those things. 
we preach a weak, foolish cross. I mean, think back to last night. How could you ever have looked at Jesus dying on the cross and thought, now that's powerful? At least thought it was him that was powerful. You might have thought the Romans were, but no one was ever going to be impressed by Jesus up there, was it? Jesus was helpless. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was crucified. Worse than that, he was cursed by God. Everyone knew that. Where's the power in that? And where's the wisdom in the idea of a king who has been crucified as a criminal? It's insane. But Paul says that's our message. We preach the very thing that will be a stumbling block to the audience. More than that, look at the people that God chooses to be His in verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying God's people are just like Jesus on the cross. They're the foolish, the weak, and the lowly. They're education students. Primary education at that. In the past, I've had art students, but they, they complain. They complain. And then they say, would you like fries with that? And then they... But it's all right. We lost the engineers about half an hour ago. So don't worry. God's people are the slaves. God's people are the poor, the unimpressive people. But in verse 27, they're the people God chose. Why? Why would you have a message and a people who are calculated to invite nothing but scorn from the world? Well, you see it in verse 29 so that no one may boast before him. That is, God chooses a weak cross and a weak people so that we can never boast. Or down in verse 31, so that we'll boast in God himself, not us. See, what would happen if the church was full of impressive people? Imagine if all of Hollywood just became Christians overnight. Ryan Roberts becomes a Christian. The Rock becomes a Christian. Scarlett Johansson becomes a Christian. Everyone would want to be Christians overnight, wouldn't they? Mass conversions. Kind of almost happened with Kanye a few years ago, didn't it? All of a sudden, everyone's going on to church. And it sounds great, but conversion to what? What would people actually be converted to? Not worshipping God, right? No, people would be worshipping the movie stars. But when your church is full of dregs, when your church is full of the outcasts and the lowly, the slaves, the lowest rungs on the social ladder, well, then God is in the spotlight, isn't he? No one's eyes are on us at that point. No, it becomes how great is God that God can fashion a glorious eternal kingdom out of such garbage as these people and of that cross. How magnificent is God? That's what's so dangerous about this thing called the prosperity gospel. Have you come across the prosperity gospel? It's the idea that real Christians should be rich. 
And real Christians should be healthy, and real Christians should be successful, and real Christians should be popular. It used to be really focused on money, in other words, give to God and God will make you rich, but it's actually a bit more subtle now. Now it's more about a lifestyle. Picture in your mind a church where everyone is just beautifully dressed. They're, they're in a light-filled, artistically designed building and they all drive nice cars. And the guys are all fit and handsome and successful and the girls are all beautiful and they're all stylish and everyone out the front is just the epitome of it all. They've all got straight teeth and the show is perfect every week because God gives you the good life. Don't you just wish you could be one of those people? Don't you just want to be part of the in crowd? Everyone out there does. People with broken lives look at those churches and they want that dream. But who's worshipped in that scenario? Not God, right? No, it's the pastor. It's the successful people. It's the lifestyle. But the cross is not beautiful and successful and middle class. No, the cross is gross. The cross is blood and guts and vomit. It's shame and humiliation. And we're going to see later on this week, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up that cross. You have to join me in the mud and the blood and the shame so that God gets the glory, not his shiny perfect people. Heaven preserve Uni Church from ever becoming one of those churches where the shininess of the show masks the shame of the cross. God, preserve us from ever being impressive. God, make us always be that little bit laughable. Give us people with dreadful fashion sense. <laughs> Give us MCs who stumble over our words and microphones that don't work, and normally they turn it off now. Give us bands that fluff the intro. Give us real people. With insecurities and struggles with sin, give us people with depression and bipolar. Bring us the people who will deflect the honour to God and not absorb it themselves. Because you see, that's a church that gets the Copernican revolution. That God is the one who's powerful and that God is the one who's wise and that God is so magnificent, he can use something as despicable as a cross to build a kingdom. He can use something as laughable as a crucified king to establish his victory in the universe. And the cross shows us that. It's the cross for God's sake. And the last way the cross is for God's sake is that it's the glory of God's name. Now, when I say the last way, don't be fooled. We're about 60% of the way through the talk now. <laughs> Come with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, I'll give you a moment to, um, to rest. Don't get up, don't leave. But this is where we really land tonight. John chapter 12. Did I say John 12? John 12 verse 20. John chapter 12 verse 20. Now there were some Greeks... John 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. 
And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is another one of those odd passages, right? Some Greeks come and they ask to see Jesus and response to some Greeks asking to see him, Jesus says, well, that means the hour has come for me to be glorified. Why? What's so special about the Greeks? Well, you'll have to look back to um, a chapter or so before it. But what does Jesus mean by glorified? Well, he explains what his glory is in the next verse. Look in verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is talking about his death, isn't he? His glory is his death. And we're going to dig into that at length tomorrow night. But not just Jesus' glory... Have a look in verse 28. He says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Isn't that an amazing moment? It's not often that God speaks from heaven. And God from heaven says to Jesus, I have glorified my name and I'm about to glorify it again. Somehow, the moment when Jesus died is when God glorifies his name. Jesus' death is actually God's most glorious hour, which sounds incredible after last night, doesn't it? I mean, remember that moment we looked at where God turns away from his son, where God forsakes his son. It was horrible. Surely that's a moment for God to be ashamed of. That's a moment that's regrettable. Surely in that moment, God was not glorious. How can the cross be God's moment of glory? And what does it mean that God glorifies His name? How do you glorify a name? Well, actually, God's glory and His name are intimately connected. They've always been connected ever since Exodus 33. So what I want you to do is, if you've got a paper Bible, just keep your finger in John and come back with me all the way to Exodus 33. While you're turning back, it's important you do it. This is one of the great passages of the Bible. We're all the way back at Mount Sinai. What's just happened is Israel have committed their great sin with the golden calf. You know what it was about. And God has punished them and God has also forgiven them. And have a look what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 3. Exodus 33, verse 3. God says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) Isn't that a moment of dose of reality? God says, you go up, but I'm not going with you because there's every chance I'm going to wipe you out. You're so sinful. But think about what will happen to Israel if God doesn't go with them. I mean, they only just got out of Egypt because God went with them. How's Israel going to survive? How are they going to defeat their enemies? And so look what Moses begs God down in verse 15. 
Then Moses said to God, if your presence doesn't go up with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, Moses says, don't send us up without you, God. How will anyone know that we're your people? How are we going to get through this and survive? And so in verse 17, God relents. Look in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you. And I know you by name, power of prayer, right there. God gives Moses what he asks. He's going to go with them. And then in verse 18, almost as if to celebrate, Moses does something incredibly brave and maybe a little bit cheeky. He asks God to show him his glory. So look in verse 18. He says, now show me your glory. That's pretty cheeky, isn't it? It's very brave for a human being to say to God, show me your glory. I think what Moses wants here is proof that God's presence will be with them. I think he's saying, if you're staying, show me your glory. Because when God came down on Mount Sinai to be with his people, he showed them his glory. God's glory is proof of his presence. And Moses is saying, well, if you're staying, show me your glory. So what's God going to do to show Moses his glory? What would you expect? I mean, well, on Mount Sinai, it was thunder and it was lightning. It was, it was an earthquake. It was so scary that Israel said, Moses, you go up there. We don't want to go near God. Is God going to rip open the earth with an earthquake? Is, is God going to make it snow in the desert? That would make an amazing show of glory, wouldn't it? Is God going to make it hail or lightning? How is God going to show his glory? We'll have a look at what he says in verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name the Lord in your presence see when it comes to God's glory don't think about power or might he has those but power and might that's how human beings measure glory our, our heroes are people with power and might, sportsmen, movie stars, wealth, success. For us, power is glorious, but no, God's power, God's glory is actually something more impressive. It's his goodness. God's glory is actually his character. It's his nature. It's his perfection. It's his goodness. And in fact, all of God's character and nature and perfection and goodness is captured in his name, the Lord. So look in verse 19. God says, I'll cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim, I'll shout, I'll declare to you my name, the Lord. You see, the Lord, God's name captures his goodness. And you might never have realized that God actually has a name. I mean, most of the time, we don't call God by a name, we just call him God, don't we? But God has a name. In verse 19, it's the Lord. Although, just have a close look in your Bible, and you'll notice that they've written the Lord a little bit strangely. It's all written in capitals. Notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's because the word there is not actually the word for Lord. In the Hebrew, it's not the Hebrew word for Lord. It's this word up on the screen. It's Yuhoah. It's those four letters. No one's actually quite sure how to pronounce it. No one really knows because, you see, the Jews never pronounced it. 
Whenever they came across it in the Bible, they didn't want to misuse God's name because of the Ten Commandments. So they never said it out loud. So we don't know what vowels to stick in there. They just came across it and said the word Lord. And that's what our translators have done. Whenever they come across, they go, well, let's do what the Jews did. Let's write Lord, but we'll stick it in capitals so that everyone knows that the word is Yehoah. Probably the way to pronounce it is Yahweh. The Jehovah's Witnesses pronounce it as Jehovah, which is actually the same consonants, but most likely it's Yahweh. So when Moses asked to see God's glory, God says, I will show you all of my goodness and I will tell you my name, Yahweh. Because you see, God's glory is his goodness and that goodness is captured in a name. Names are actually like that, aren't they? Names are meant to represent who we are. So most names have a meaning. If your name is Peter, that means rock. My name is Gregory, it means vigilant or attentive. And often names are chosen to represent the character of the person. So the name Abraham means father of many because he was going to be the father of many. There's a man in the Old Testament whose name is Nabal, which means idiot. Because when you meet him, he is an idiot. He gets himself killed. (laughs) Names reflect our character. Have we got anyone who's Korean here? Have we got any Koreans? Anyone who speaks Korean? I actually have. I actually have my own Korean name. It's Wang Him. Because you see, when I was at university, I had the surname Lee, and all my Korean friends at church said, well, you've got the name Lee, Lee's really popular in Korean, you must be Korean. And so I said, well, in that case, I want my own Korean name. And they said, what kind of name do you want? I was like, it has to be something powerful. And so I came came to Wang Him, which is Korean for regal and mighty. (laughs) At least I think, I don't speak Korean. It could actually mean duck poo, but... (laughs) Names mean something. So what does God's name mean? How does God's name reflect his majesty and his glory and his goodness? Well, in chapter 34, God explains his name. He places Moses in a cleft of a rock and look in 34 verse 6. He he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That is God's name. That's what the name Yahweh means. I am one him, regal and mighty. God is Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And if you, you'll notice that just like Wang Him, God's name has two very strong ideas as part of it. In verse 6 and 7 there, there's the idea of grace. God is compassionate in his goodness. He's gracious. He maintains love to the thousands. He forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is, God's name shows that his goodness and his character is to be merciful. And the key Hebrew word that's part of that section is the word hesed. Hesed means grace. It means mercy and compassion and kindness because that's the kind of God he is. 
but God's name also declares him to be just. So in verse 7, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. In fact, God punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And the key word in that section is the word emeth, truth, justice, rightness, fairness. You see, God's name actually unpacks His character for us, His goodness. And it's a character of two sides, mercy and justice, grace and truth. And that's exactly what we discover about God in the Bible, isn't it? All the way through the Bible, God's character is both mercy and justice. And so when Israel make the golden calf just before this, what does God do? He forgives them. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, what does he do? He forgives them. He makes them clothes. When Cain sins, what does God do? He spares him and sends him away. When the world is overcome by sin in Noah's time, what does he do? He saves Noah and his family. You see, God, all the way through the Bible, is true to his glorious name. He's true to his hesed, his grace, his compassion. And in fact, the great message of the Bible is that there is no one God can't forgive. There's no one who is beyond the hope of God's mercy. And yet at the same time, there's also no one beyond the reach of God's justice, his emeth. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He judges the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I don't think that means that God judges people who aren't guilty. It's that God pursues justice completely. God sees that sin is fully punished, that justice is fully done. And you see that all through the Bible, don't you? So Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and eventually they do die. Cain is cast out. God did send the flood, and Israel the judge because of the golden calf. And there is no sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed for which the entire penalty will not be paid. You see, God's name is His glory. And his name means grace and truth. And with all of that in mind, come back to John. Because now we're in a position at last to understand what's about to happen. It's just before the cross. Jesus is heading towards his death. And he cries out, Father, glorify your name. Now what should we expect What should we expect God to do from this moment onwards? We ought to expect God to display both grace and truth. We ought to expect that at the cross, God's hesed and his emeth will be displayed to the world. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus promises. Because look what Jesus says next in verse 30. He says, that voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Do you see what Jesus is promising in his death? He's promising both judgment and salvation. Judgment, because he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. The prince of this world will be driven out. We saw earlier that on the cross, God destroyed Satan. He triumphed over him. But it wasn't just Satan who was judged. The world was judged on the cross too. 
because the world was shown to be truly evil once for all and for all. Jesus' death proved the world's guilt once and for all. You see, certain acts, when they happen, are so undeniably evil that it can't be denied. You can't see planes flying into the Twin Towers and not recognize evil in that moment. You can't see the laughing face of a Bali bomber terrorist and not recognize evil in that moment. And the cross was the ultimate moment of evil for humanity. See, earlier in John, Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And on the cross, the evil of the world was exposed. The verdict on the world is clear at the cross. Light came into the world in the form of God's own Son, but people loved darkness because their deeds were evil. The cross displays God's emeth because it convicts the world of its evil. You can never say human beings are good because look at what they did to God. But you know, the cross does more than just display and declare our evil. On the cross, in his emeth, God punishes evil as he punishes his son. Think about everything that we saw last night. On the cross, Jesus was sin-laden. On the cross, Jesus was punished for sin. And God smote him and God struck him and God afflicted him. He punished him and he forsook him. And God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. And we might have been tempted. You might have been tempted to think less of God for that. You might have been tempted to hate God for that. But no, that moment on the cross was glorious. It was glorious because God's justice was displayed. God's emeth, God's righteousness was seen at the cross. Because you see, in his glory, God could never ignore our sin, could he? If God was to ignore our sin, to not punish it, then he would be denying his own name. He'd be denying who he is as God. For God to ignore sin is actually to deny the very thing that he is. And it would be wicked. And so on the cross, God ensured that punishment was enacted. Paul puts it like this. He says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, unless Jesus died, unless punishment was acted out, God could not be himself. He couldn't be MF because someone had to pay for those sins. And until Jesus, no one ever had properly paid for sins. From the garden to the cross, millions of people lived and died, sinning their entire lives, and God had withheld all of his punishment. All of that justice had backed up in the character of God. He didn't punish them, not even the sacrifices of the law, properly dealt with sin. In Hebrews, they're just a shadow. Until Jesus, the sin of the world was left 
unpunished by God and every single one of them demanded that God take it seriously. God could not be God. God could not be His name unless He dealt with our sins. And so God sent His Son to pay for the sins of the whole world. Jesus was a penal substitute as God directed all of His anger away from us and onto His Son. Every single word, every single thought, every single desire and action of every single man and woman and child who has ever lived was punished in that moment on Jesus. When Jesus went up on that cross, God exercised all of his limitless truth. It was horrific. And in that moment, God demonstrated that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. As with frightful ferocity, he poured out his wrath on his son. And so the cross is glorious. It's glorious because God's character was fully shown. And not just shown, it was glorious because God's character was fully expressed. God was thoroughly God at the cross. He was thoroughly just. He was thoroughly right. He was thoroughly fair. God was thoroughly himself in that moment. And you might be thinking, well, what, all of this? All of that horror so that God could show who he is and be who he is? All that pain just so God could express his character? You might think the price is too high. But friends, nothing in the universe is more important than God being seen for who he is. That God being praised for his justice. That God should be marveled at for his justice. That people should look at that cross and say, how just is our God? He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Nothing's as important as that. And nothing as important as the universe as God being God. Who cares whether you're true to yourself, but God being God, that's the most important thing in the universe. You see, on the cross, a conflict within God himself was actually removed. The conflict of his justice. God was himself fully perfect in every way. And Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. He's asking God to pour out his justice on himself. Jesus' prayer at that moment is to call God, judge me on the cross, because that is the glory of your name. And yet it's not just his emeth. The, God, the cross also shows God's beautiful hesed. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' death rose out of God's great love. His hesed. That God did not want to his world to perish. That's why he gave his son. God gave up his one and only son to his own anger, so that the guilty might go free. That is, Jesus' death was a declaration of passion, that God's love, 
that God's chesed is every bit as towering as his emeth, that as much as God's character demanded justice, he longed to forgive. And if that meant the sacrifice of his son, then so be it. If forgiveness uh, for us came at the sacrifice of God's precious son, then out of love, out of chesed, out of grace, God was willing. And so Jesus' death is truly glorious because there can be no greater statement of love than that moment. No word, no deed, no song, no painting, no poem, nothing in all of the universe has expressed love like that moment on the cross that God should forgive such a wicked world, that God should forgive us after everything we've done at the great price for himself, that is glorious. That God should so perfectly act out his character of grace and truth, that's glorious. In the end, God's grace and his truth are all the same thing. They're two pieces of wood and the sun nailed up there for all to see. God exercising his justice to its limitless end. And God pouring out his compassion in beautiful salvation. That's what the cross was about. That God could be himself. And yet before we finish... I just want us to see one last aspect of God's glory. And this, I think, is the most beautiful, the most sacred thing I have ever seen. It's the one that takes us to the very heart of the Trinity. And that is that the glory of the cross is actually the Son's obedience to his Father. Come back to John 12 again. Have a look in verse 27 and 28. John 12, 27, 28, Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And that's what Jesus longs to say. That's what he said in the garden. Who would willingly go through what we saw Jesus go through last night? And yet Jesus then says, No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. This is the reason why I came to earth. Father, glorify your name. And in that moment there, in the son's obedience, that the son was so fully obedient to his father for all of the universe to see, is the ultimate glory of the cross. See, the world hates God. We hate God. We don't believe God's worth obeying. We blaspheme his name. We take him so lightly. But on that afternoon, on the cross, Jesus showed how God should be treated. Jesus obeyed his Father and he honoured him and he loved him. John 14 just brings me to tears. Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what he's commanded me. Do you see what the cross really was? Amid all the mud and the blood and the tears and the pain, even in the middle of all of the forsaking, 
the cross was actually a love letter of the son to his father. The cross was actually Jesus saying, Father, I love you and I'll obey you and I will honor you and I will show this world just how you ought to be loved. I will die for your glory. See, Jesus could have gotten away from that moment on the cross. He says Satan has no hold on him. The nails couldn't have held him to the cross. The soldiers couldn't have stopped him. It was love that kept Jesus up on that cross. It was love for his father that nailed him there. He chose the cross so that we, the world, the angels, the universe, the demons, the stars and the planet could see what it means to truly love God. To truly honor him. Everything we saw Jesus go through last night, every single stroke of a whip, every single beating, every heartbeat, every breath, the very wrath of God being poured out on Jesus at his death, the very moment when Jesus died, he was saying to his Father, I love you. This is for you. You are worthy to be obeyed. You are worthy to be loved and you are worthy to be honored. Friends, this is sacred ground. This is where we trespass upon the very intimate nature of the Father and the Son together. This is where we go inside the triune family of a Father who adores His Son and a Son who so loves His Father that he endures all of the wrath of the world. That's at this moment that we have the Copernican Revolution. It's at this moment that we break through the me-centered barrier in our thinking. Because when we reach the very heart of the cross, we don't find ourselves there. We find God there. A father and a son deeply loving each other. And isn't that the best part of the cross? Isn't the cross far better now? That you see that it's for God's sake, not yours. Don't you love Jesus more? Knowing that it was love for his father that kept him there. Don't you love God more? knowing that he knew exactly that and yet for your sake poured out his wrath on his son. What must it have cost the father to do that? Don't you just want to pray, God, lift my eyes. Lift my eyes, help me to get over myself. Lift my eyes even above my salvation so that I love your glory at the cross that you defeated your enemies, that you crushed them, that you bought a people for yourself, that you displayed your wisdom, but more than that, on the cross you were fully yourself at last. You were fully just. You were fully merciful. And on the cross you were loved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father,
we praise you that the cross is so much bigger than us. We were saved, we were washed, we were justified, we were reconciled. Jesus did all of those things on our behalf. And yet we praise you that it was for you. We praise you that on the cross, Satan was at last defeated, his realm was emptied. We praise you that you made us a people who'll be given to you and we long for that day when we'll stand presented before you at last, holy and blameless. We praise you that you are the God who can make a people out of a crucified king and a foolish message. But we praise you that on the cross you are fully yourself. Having never fully, properly judged sin, we praise you that you were yourself on the cross. You poured out all of your justice, all of your wrath, all of your anger, all of your rightness and fairness on the shoulders of Jesus. And we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that it wasn't on we who deserve it. What must it have cost for you to punish the innocent son? We praise you for the son's love. We praise you that at that moment we get to see into the very nature of your love for your son and your son's love for you. And we love him all the more for it and we love you. And we pray tomorrow as we see Jesus' glory and as we see how the cross was for his sake that we'll bask in your love for your son even at that moment. Amen.